Welcome to the GazetteNet UMass Sports Podcast. I'm Kyle Grabowski. Joining me is Matt Vitor. Later, we will have former UMass tennis coach Judy Dixon on to discuss the recently released film Battle of the Sexes. First, we've, we've got a first coming up later. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to us both on SoundCloud and on iTunes at Gazette Sports, or you can find us on gazettenet.com. Um, joining me is Matt Vitor to talk about something that we haven't had a chance to chat about yet, and that's a UMass football win. Matt, how, how did this happen? <laughs> it, uh, it wasn't only a win, but it was pretty clear from after the first quarter that they were, they were going to win. This was a battle of two of the NCAA's five winless teams going in, um, and UMass was clearly better. And that's not, uh, that's not something that's, that's been, um, you've been able to say very often this year. Um, for a lot of this season, UMass has come close in a, in a lot of games, and this time they, they, there was never in doubt. Um, there was a rare moment uh, that UMass had touchdowns, touchdown passes on three consecutive offensive plays for them which is mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, UMass had a a 97-yard drive for a touchdown. Uh, On the the following Georgia Southern drive, uh, Georgia Southern fumbled. UMass got the ball back, and UMass immediately threw a touchdown. Kicked off. Georgia Southern fumbled the kickoff. UMass uh, threw a touchdown on the next play. So it was 21-0 very quickly, and UMass kind of t- took care of business from there. As as George Southern, who had also hadn't won a game, obviously, I, th- I think they, I think their confidence uh, went you know, disappeared immediately when that happened. Um, and George Southern certainly a program that's in some turmoil itself. They fired Coach Tyson Summers after the game, so um, UMass is hoping that that this is something to, that they can uh, build on going into this weekend's game against Appalachian State. Well, I think one of the things that was interesting when you look back at how UMass accomplished this scoring outburst was just the balance they had with it. What was, yeah. what was that like to see? Both in, you know, you you saw Comus a lot. You saw Ford also had a touchdown pass, but you also had both Bilal Ali and Marquise Young over 100 yards. You know, how were they able to, to be so balanced? It was, it was, I think it was almost some balance by accident in that, Andrew Ford was not guaranteed to play until late in the week, so they'd built a game plan around using Roscomas a lot. So Roscomas started the game, um, and then but Andrew Ford, who is the number one quarterback, was healthy enough, so there was a package for both of them. So Whipple said he wasn't sure that how he was going to do it continuing through the game, but he had Comas play the first quarter, then Ford played the second quarter. It worked out so well, they did the same thing in the second half. Uh, Marquise Young was suspended for the first quarter for an undisclosed violation of, of team rules, um, but came back in the second. But by the time he'd come back in, Bilal Ali had played really well. Um, and so they mixed drives for those guys too. So the balance worked out nicely accidentally. And, and I'll be curious to see this week how, how much they continue that balance and how much they go out of their way to, to, uh, to make things for both quarterbacks and both running backs. Well, it seems weird that it would just work out that way for them because they've had so much this year that 
works out exactly the opposite way to where just kind of everything came together. Really for the past several years, yeah. For for everything to work out has been so rare for, for UMass. There's been a couple of games where had one thing or one, you know, a couple of inches on one thing gone differently that, that UMass has a win or more wins. Um, and so for, for things to, to, to go that easily and, and for some unusual circumstances to come together that effectively is certainly not something UMass has been used to. Well, and then they, they have to turn their attention to Appalachian State, who has probably pulled off the FCS to FBS transitions as well as any program in the country. You're looking at a 5-2 and two team that's right now made bowl games. They just need the one win to become bowl eligible. They've only lost to Georgia, which everyone's lost to Georgia, and Wake Forest, which is, you know, your standard FBS. And, and more respectable than in some years Wake Forest team, too. That bo- both of the, those losses are certainly losses that, that are, are defensible. Um, App State is, is, I think, probably still the favorite, if not one of the favorites, in, in the Sun Belt. So um, this is a big step for UMass. I mean, people look at this on the schedule. UMass fans look at it and say, wow, two weeks in a row – UMass is playing against teams that they faced in the FCS championship games, Georgia Southern in 98, App State in 2006. But in reality, these are not two similar football teams. Georgia Southern is struggling badly, and App State's really good. Well, and plus, you know, they have to think, you can't really look back and think, oh, we did this in 98 and 2006. Of course. Because I don't think anyone has that much eligibility. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, the... Um, uh, App State and App State at that point was a was an option team. They're now a, they're more they're more of a spread team. Taylor Lamb's a, a good dual threat quarterback. This is a this will be a challenge, probably um, more comparable to. Uh, they're probably better than Old Dominion and, and at least as good at, as Ohio, the team teams that uh, UMass has, has played this year. So I don't think people are going to confuse them with Tennessee. Um, but I, th- I think beyond that, this, this, is a, uh, this is one of the best teams on UMass's schedule. Well, it seems like the, defensively one of their strengths really is the secondary, where you've got, they've got the two top interception leaders in the Sun Belt in Clifton Duck and Tay Hayes, which seems like it's going to be a challenge for UMass to go up against a secondary like that, just with the way they've – it's kind of taken them a while to get the passing game right so far this year. Yeah, and I think certainly uh, – that it'll be inherent for UMass to get um, the running game going again to have it, have another good day for for it to uh, to allow them to um, to be in run pass choice situations rather than be forced into third and long where where those cornerbacks can can really do uh, to do what, do what they do best. Um, the thing for that, that has worked out well for UMass in the passing game when Adam Brenneman is healthy. Is that he's a guy that's hard to match up against because he's he's faster than most linebackers and certainly too big for most corners to, to handle. So I would expect that this game and he is healthy again um, is a, is a game that um, that he has a chance to make a uh, significant impact if UMass is going to have any chance of being successful. He seems to make whoever is taking the snaps life significantly easier. I think it's also worth at least just mentioning that this is the last game at McGurk this year before they play the you know, the final home game at Fenway against Maine. Um, so that's... It is, yeah. It's, it's, it's been such a weird schedule this year, too. Now, coming off the two weeks before the Georgia Southern game, now to not have any more games in, in Amherst after, uh, 
after Saturday to have a home game at Fenway to, to play in, in, into December, which which they'll do against Florida International. It's it's a it's a weird year, and, and certainly that this being the last, uh, they're they're not making this Senior Day, which originally I think was the plan. Um, they're going to have Senior Day be at Fenway, so they'll be celebrating both their first and last games at Fenway on the same day. Well, I mean, that's that's not a bad place to, to have a first or a last game, it seems like. Make some nice pictures, certainly. You, you have your uh, senior day ceremony in front of the uh, in front of the Green Monster, and that'll, that'll certainly be some memorable pictures that not a lot of people will be able to uh, say that they did in college football. Well, you know, if, if they don't have a lot of ones, at least they'll have that for them. <laughs> exactly. Um, so kind of that'll move us from the, the gridiron to the hardwood, as it were. you got to... A solid look, probably, at the UMass basketball teams. Um, at, at they had a sort of event at the Hoop Hall Classic. Was there anything that, that came out of that, or what stuck out to you from sort of that public unveiling? I think it was, it was just it was kind of a, a, a fun event. I, I think um, that the unique McLean's reputation as a dunker is certainly remains well earned, and he uh, he had a, he had a, a dunk that you can see. Um, on uh, in the, in the story about it, there's there's video where uh, freshman guard Carl Pierre, who's six foot four, held a basketball above his head. Unique McLean uh, ran from the baseline, jumped up, spread his legs out to grab the ball and dunked it while while clearing Carl Pierre, which is it's just a pretty Im- impressive feat. It, it was fun to see. I, I don't know that I learned a ton basketball wise from watching that. I've I've seen him in practice a few times and got a lot more from that, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it was. I, th- I think it was a, a fun thing to see, and, and they certainly seem like a group that's enjoying being around each other, which is a good place to start. They're, there's a they're a thin thin group, not a lot of bench. So for them to have some good, at least personal chemistry, is is uh, is important because they're going to spend a lot of time together. So if they do have that thin bench, what is your sense of who is going to be starting and getting a majority of the minutes? I'll I'll have a. Um, I'll have a, a, a story when when people are listening to this. There'll be a, there should be a story up on GazetteNet um, talking about that a little bit. I think there that a couple things are certain. When Rashawn Holloway is healthy, and at the moment he's battling back from a um, from a broken thumb, when he's healthy, he'll be the starting center. Uh, Luan Pipkins and C.J. Anderson are going to start somewhere. Uh, the question then becomes how do you how do you want to do it? Um, McCall said today you could use a small lineup. That would have Anderson at the even at the four. Anderson six five playing power forward against some of the teams UMass plays. That's not ridiculous, um, and that would certainly have Pipkins at point guard. And then you'd be choosing from two out of the three: um, Carl Pierre, Unique McLean, or um, or Rayshon Miller. Uh, for you'd be starting two of those guys at the at the two wings at the two wing spots. Um, your other option is to play bigger and. Uh, you'd have Holloway at center with either Baldwin at the four or even Malik Hines at the four, um, and then Anderson, Pipkin, and one of those three guys that that uh, we mentioned. At some point, and it it it, uh, it seems unlikely to be early, um, McCall has mentioned that that he'll have lineup situations where where Chris Baldwin is is playing the three, and that would give you a huge lineup that had. That would have Holloway, Malik Hines, and Chris Baldwin up front. That that seems like a long way off. But I did. I watched practice for a while today. They were definitely using some zone 
playing uh, playing zone defense helps them in terms of some things foul trouble wise and helps them negate some matchup questions that, that could happen based on their thin roster. So you mentioned when Holloway is healthy, who is going to be at center for them while he's working back from the hand? It'll be Malik Hines. Uh, it's possible, it seems unlikely, but it's possible Holloway could be back for the November 10th opener against Lowell. More likely that'll be, it'll be Hines starting that, starting that game. Gotcha. Um, so what do they have lined up as we get closer to the start of basketball season? Okay, uh, on Saturday of this week, they, they have a closed scrimmage that's, uh, against Siena. That's um, one, of the, one of the things is that you have the option before the season starts of, of two preseason events. You can have a an preseason game, and you must do that in, on November 3rd against Springfield College, or a um, or an, or a closed scrimmage, which two teams will get together at one of their gyms. You must play Siena, and they'll, they'll they can sometimes will play one game, sometimes they'll play two mini games, and they'll have opportunities within it for the coaches to like stop action and and teach a little bit with their players. It's it's almost always teams that won't play each other during the regular season. Most of these are, are fairly local, um, and so they'll ha- they'll set something up like that. That's what, So UMass is, is having one of each, an exhibition game and a, and a closed scrimmage before Lowell. Uh, Matt McCall said he wanted the closed scrimmage as an opportunity to teach and see how his team reacted to a, a playing against different opponents. And then the... Um, then the the exhibition game would be a chance to actually play on the Mullen Center floor with the lights on and, and, and things going. So I think um, I, I think bo- having both of those would, will probably be beneficial for this team leading up to their season opener on November 10th. All right, well, when, and one season that has been open for a while has been UMass Hockey. The last time we spoke, they were sort of gearing up for a – two games against a ranked Ohio State team, and it seems like those did not go as well as they would have liked. Um, yeah, they struggled to score in those games. They, uh, they had some – They, I, I was at the Friday game. I, I saw some of the um, I saw some of the Saturday game on the on the live stream from the football press box. Uh, the Friday game especially, UMass went toe-to-toe with Ohio State, which in, – and – it was a pretty even matchup. Ohio State did a better job of finishing. Uh, they, Ohio State sco- with the scores one to one before Ohio State added two power play goals. Even strength, they, they were uh, it was pretty well matched. And UMass truthfully had more scoring chances than Ohio State did. Ohio State's goalie was up to the, to the challenge. UMass was, from the sounds of things, from what I saw in both and then talking to um, to people that saw it and t- talking to to Greg Carville as well was pretty even on chances on, on Saturday as well, but, but didn't, uh, didn't do a good job of finishing the opportunities they had. Um, he said that this, this team right did not, he didn't like the, the energy they played with, didn't like the, the uh, execution, and it'll be, it'll be interesting for me to see going into this weekend's action, the start of hockey, he's playing against Merrimack, how this team bounces back and, and what they gained, what they learned from, from the two losses to Ohio State. Well, the conference play, especially in hockey, is always just a, a completely different animal and set of challenges for them. It, it totally is, and it's it's a grind. And and with all these schools so close together, everybody's at least kind of a rival. And UMass has got a lot of attention for their for their ballyhooed 
freshman class. Um, to and so I think you'll see other. I think you'll see other teams try to try to assert some dominance on against them early. I, I think you'll see teams, um, you know, with with some some big checks early to see just how tough UMass is, just how much the players can take, and it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they how they handle that that kind of thing and because you know on one hand it's just two hockey teams on the ice together but but i think psychologically and and it's it's more than that it seems a lot like mighty ducks d3 when they're when they're going up against the varsity i can very proudly tell you i've not seen that okay well all right well so matt we've uh, you've been kind of working on this conversation for a while with Judy Dixon. What was your thought process behind it, and how, how did you, uh, why did you come to talk to her? Judy Dixon has been, over the years, one of my favorite people to talk to. I don't cover a, a ton of tennis, but she's, she's interesting, and um, she's got an interesting kind of history uh, in her career. She was involved um, in Title IX lawsuits when she, when she was a, a coach at, at, at Yale, um, she's a professional tennis player, and during her professional tennis career, at one point she was Billie Jean King's doubles partner, and she's remained friends with Billie Jean King for, for years. She's, um, so when this movie came out, which this movie is about, um, it's centered around the famous Battle of the Sexes match between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King, but it's also, uh, it's also about the beginning of the Women's Tennis Association, and and it a lot. It's a lot about sport, equality of sport, and uh, women's athletics in general. And so there's a lot of themes in it together. And I, I saw the movie a couple of weeks ago, and before it even came out, I, I I told Judy I said I want to talk to you about this when it comes out to to hear your thoughts because you were there and you you saw these things these things transpire and and I th- I thought that she'd have a uh, a good perspective on it and I, I'm really glad I did it was it was one of those things that, one of my favorite things about this podcast is having some of these conversations and and Judy's always interesting and certainly was in this case okay I'm joined by you uh, former UMass tennis coach Judy Dixon uh, Judy as you know we invited you on to talk about battle of this uh, about battle of the sexes this Steve Carell Emma Stone movie about the famous match between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King but before we get there how's re- retirement treating you well I think the word retirement is probably wrong for me um, because it means I think stopping really what I've done is turn the page um, so I've been teaching something called Moving On Up in Springfield, which is um, teaching tennis to inner-city kids, inner-city youth in the Springfield, Chicopee area. I've been doing that for a lot of the summer, and um, I'm on the board of directors there, so I'm very involved in that program. And also, I've been competing. um, I just came back from the World Championships in Orlando, competing in the World Individual Championships, so training for that has kept me busy. So um, I'm looking forward to um, stepping back. (laughs) <laughs> you haven't gotten much use out of that uh, out of that gifted gifted rocking chair just yet. Well, I, I you know I have polished it and uh, kept the dust off it, but <laughs> Ryan was 
correct when he said I probably wouldn't use it much. <laughs> well, uh, reason uh, the the reason that, that we're having uh, Judy on the podcast today is is uh, largely because uh, you've had a uh, you've had a long time friendship with with uh, with Billy Jean King, who's who's the the her- the heroine of, of that movie. Um, I guess for starters, can you kind of talk about how you know Billy Jean, how how your friendship uh, began, and how it's evolved over the years? Sure. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, and I um, took some tennis lessons, and I was coached a little bit by a man named Frank Brennan. Um, Frank Brennan Jr., so Frank Brennan Sr.'s son, was um, Frank Brennan Jr., who was the coach at Stanford for a long time. And in and in doing coming to New Jersey to play tournaments, um, Billie Jean had met Frank Brennan, and he had helped her out over the years. And so um, I was one of the better juniors in the country at the time, and Billie Jean was used to playing doubles with Rosie Casals, and Rosie was injured, and so Frank Brennan said, how would you like to play doubles with Billie Jean in a couple of tournaments in New England? And, and at that time, I again, I was... 17 years old and still in the juniors and Billie Jean was number one in the world and I was like no you've got to be kidding and and then about two weeks later I got a letter from Billie Jean actually asking me to play doubles with her so um, we went to a tournament in in, uh, Winchester Massachusetts called the National Women's Indoors and we had played another tournament um, the week before that Um, so I got a chance to play two separate weeks with her back to back and not only playing with her, but also at that time, people, there was no prize money, so people were not staying in hotels. We were staying in people's homes. And so I got to stay in a home with Billie Jean for two weeks, you know, a home of another couple. Right. And so the two, the two weeks that I spent with her um, were unbelievably important in, in my life, um, just in the, the talks that we had late at night and during the day. So... Um, she not only helped me off court, but she helped me on the court. And then our friendship sort of continued after that um, and became more social. And um, we've kept up with each other over the years. Well, the the, uh, the movie which you and I have both now seen, it's centered around the build-up to the, the you know the, the legendary 1973 Battle of the Sexes match, but but also about the beginnings of the WTA and and, and Billie Jean's personal life. Uh, I, I guess for starters, did, did what did you think of it? Well, I had um, I, I, for me it was very mixed. Um, I thought that the beginning of the movie was was a bit exploitive, um, and I thought that there were and, and I'm talking about particularly with uh, Marilyn Barnett and Billie Jean, um, not about the relationship, but you know I thought that the sex scenes were exploitive, and um, and I actually surprised that that was in the movie. Um, I I knew Billie Jean then, and I was around then. I was um, right around at the beginning of the WTA, and a lot of my friends were part of the original nine. And, um, you know, I know what it was like back then, and I thought there was much more to be had from the movie that could have been um, more developed, the political side of it, the... um, the pieces about the U.S. at the time it was the U.S. LTA, so it was the United States Lawn Tennis right. Association, um, and and then the WTA, and really what was on the line for those original nine? You know, the people that took the dollar. What was on the line for them was that they may not ever get a chance to play any major tournaments again if they took this risk. Um, and Chris Everett had decided not to take that risk. Right. Um, she had decided to stay with the U.S. LTA, which made her the darling of the U.S. LTA. But 
that I remember those meetings. I remember going to a, a meeting in London during uh, Wimbledon that Billie Jean actually had all these people come in and sort of closed the door and said, this is our future. And for people like me, um, I wasn't sure, you know, I mean, uh, because I wasn't ever good enough to be um, someone who was going to make money, a lot of money. I wasn't sure whether I should stay with the status quo or whether I should go to the WTA or whatever. But I remember the beginning of that. And so I wish they had done more of that um, kind of thing. You know, I, I, I thought that there was much more of a, uh, of a piece that they missed. And then on the other side, I felt that the character development of, I knew Larry King um, fairly well, and I thought that he was a very gentle, warm um, man. And he, I thought that his character development was quite good in the movie. Um, I thought that Sarah Silverman was terrific as Gladys. Um, I, I thought that they might have developed a little bit of the players, uh, again, of the original nine. They seemed to just be um, like the Rockettes, you know, sort sure, of in yeah. the background. The Greek chorus yeah, of sorts. I, yeah, I felt like, you know, they could have done a little bit more with make them into real live people than they did. Um, I thought Steve Carell was, was good, and um, I thought that the, the inflection, I thought Emma Stone had Billie Jean's sort of speech patterns down very, very, very well. Um, so I, I, I was mixed with the movie, um, and I, you know, I'm not someone who likes tennis movies in particular because I, I sort of feel like the tennis scenes themselves are just so contrived, but, um, because they had real players in this, uh, they made them look like, you know, the player looked like Billie Jean playing and the player looked like Bobby Riggs playing and the points were what I remember. I mean, cause I remember watching, everybody remembers watching the match. Right. You know, so... Yeah, it it felt a little bit, and I I read up on it a little bit. It felt a little bit like the poetic license that they took, sort of uh, changing some things t- in terms of the timeline, so they could yeah. have the Billie Jean's personal life story and Battle of the Sexes happening at the same time. I didn't know it before time, but I said to my my wife as we came out, I said. You know, did that all happen at the same time? And she had read up about it before before time, and she said no that that uh, that they kind of they took some liberties with it. It, it felt a little bit like um, it felt a little bit like it was overly mashed together. It, uh, that's what I remember too. I mean, I I I do not remember this sort of both both Larry and Marilyn being in the locker room, but you know this sort of. Um, Really, the sort of the going to the hairdresser and having a five-minute haircut or twenty-minute haircut, and then all of a sudden um, having a relationship is, is so unlike Billie Jean. You know, I think they just sort of pushed all this together and they made it more dramatic than it actually was um, at the time. And and again, I, I have to say, this is a time that I was around. You know, I was around when Marilyn right. was around. I was around when Larry was around. So I, it, it, just my recollection of of that is. Completely different than how the movie portrays it. I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, what was, how close was this to the original script? And did, did the original script, did they feel like the original script didn't, for lack of a better word, pop enough as as it was that they that they had to try to to try to ram that all together? Yeah, it's hard to say, and it's hard to say how much Billie Jean had um, any kind of veto power in in this. Um, and, you know, she's been quoted as saying it's 99% factual, which I, it may be, but I, I think the timeline is 
is off. Um, and as we know, you know, what's going to sell at the movie theater. That my brother and I went, um, the movie theater was packed. And men and women, um, mm-hmm. men and women. And so I, for that, I was really pleased. But I, again, I thought it, it was a missed opportunity in some ways. And I think that, the, as we know, um, sex sells. And so, you know, to start the movie that way um, seemed like, okay, is that the, is that the hook? that we have to have in order to, you know, to tell this story. I was, I, you know, I sort of hope not. I, I, it made me, it made me uncomfortable, I have to say, because I was, you know, I'm in the movie theater and I, um, I thought, wow, I, I don't think I really wanted to see this. I didn't <laughs> mind seeing, you know, Marilyn and, and Billie Jean walking out of the motel room late, you know, while Gladys was waiting with the car. That's, I get that, you know, that's like, you know, and I'm not a prude, you know, but it was sort of like, ah. Yeah, you you like, could infer it if they did it that way rather than. Yeah, that's right. The interesting thing, too, is they didn't promote that aspect of it in the in the commercials and in the, you know, in the, in the previews for it, that it wasn't promoted like a love story, which you'd think if they thought they needed to have that to make this movie appeal to people they would have promoted it on some level and it sort of snuck in there when you when you went in when you went into the theater at least not from the promotions i had seen i think that's right and and you know and then down the road as we know maryland sued billy jean you know that's why billy jean finally came out i think you know because of the palimony suit and right um and i think that you know i'm i, I part of me I, I have to go back and look but i'm not sure Marilyn barnett is alive anymore but um but, you know, Billie Jean, it's this sort of thing with uh, her parents and because um, she was very close to her parents and what kind of thing that was going to, what, what, what that was going to do, you know, coming out then. I mean, it um, was going to really change everything for her. First of all, first and foremost, it was going to really set women's tennis back. That was the Women's Tennis Association was going to be set back. Billie Jean says... Um, now she likes to sleep in, and when you ask her why does she like to sleep so late in the morning, she said that she's picking up for all of the years that she was on tour, that she was having to get up, um, not play, but get up to um, the press and all sorts of radio and television and everything. She was the only person that anybody wanted to hear from. Right. So she knew that, you know, right? So she knew that coming out was going to not just affect her, but it was going to affect women's tennis, um, you know, for many, many years. So I think she felt that pressure, and I think that that could have been played up more, um, you know, and and the difficulty of getting... Phil Coleman was the person who was the um, CEO of Philip Morris at the time, who was... Uh, Philip Morris was the uh, Virginia Slims... Right. ...owner of Virginia Slims, right? So... Um, Joe Coleman, who the Coleman courts at Yale University are named after, which is sort of interesting. Um, the fact that Gladys sort of talked him into this kind of sponsorship and that um, that the cigarette company then was involved with women's tennis. You know, there's that whole, that whole thing. You know, what was going on there and was that okay? And, um, you know, and then the, I, I don't know. I mean, I thought that the Rosie Cassell figure could have been a little bit better, too, because... She was, you know, she was important at the time as the person who they hired to be the foil um, for the TV, you know, that they wanted her to be controversial. And, right. Uh, um, Jack, and Jack Kramer, by the way, was well done. 
because he was uh, he was uh, people didn't know this at the time, but he he was really a, a, a you know very uh, anti women and anti women's tour and certainly anti Billy Jean in a lot of ways. And his office was at the L.A. Tennis Club, right in Los Angeles. So played played by UMass alum Bill Pullman. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> is um, you wonder like so, it feels like sometimes when a movie like this comes out, and and I, I think it's being viewed as at least on some level commercially successful. That sometimes a documentary or something, a thirty for thirty or whatever, will will uh, will follow that up. But I'd be curious to see if if uh, if this sparks some added interest in it, and in in that there would be a, a a market for for that even further. Yeah, it would be really good. I mean, right now it seems to be a very very sort of ripe time to to be getting involved more in what was going on then and, um, and women and obviously the sort of um, harassment of women, you know, which you saw from Jack Kramer and, sure. uh, right, and all of that kind of issue that's way up now because of Harvey Weinstein and, and um, all of these things, it, it would feel timely to sort of go back and delve into this even in even more. Um, and, and again, the, 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 the difference between Billie Jean and Chris Everett it really uh, is sort of one of those uh, Martina and Chris Everett, you know, the, the sort of differences and why was Chris Everett getting, you know, lipped in tea. Every single um, company was, you know, falling all over themselves to get to her. And, and you know, Billie Jean was, was really struggling to get anybody to, to you know, sponsor her. And um, it, it, it's just, you know, it's sort of like... Uh, the good and the bad, or something like that. You know, there was there's these whole issues that could have been brought up. I think it's political and and personal. In in hindsight, uh, looking back, how how should Bobby Riggs be remembered? Well, Bobby Riggs was a, a very very interesting character. Um, I as playing at the University of Southern California, I I was a member of the LA Tennis Club. He was a member there, and. This man used to come in, and this is no lie. He, he would bet on anything, and to say that he had a disease is, is you know, putting it mildly, that's for sure. Um, he was a great marketer, a great promoter. Um, he had a disease about betting. He would come in, and he would come into the L.A. Tennis Club, and the, as you walked in the door there, there was a, um, a cafeteria sort of like, and he would walk in and say, I bet she's going to eat her cheeseburger before he finishes his cheeseburger, I'll bet 10 bucks. And then he would go into the, they had a card room there. He'd go in there, he'd play cards all afternoon, he would play backgammon, and then he would come out late afternoon and he would bet. And he was, you know, he would go around and he would say uh, to Stan Smith at the time, or Bob Lutz, or Eric Van Dillon, very good tennis players at the time, he would say, let's play a set um, and you only get one serve, something like that. And then he would, dump the set on purpose, and then he would say, okay, let's double the bet, um, and I'm going to put a chair on your court, and and of course he would win. You know, I mean, he knew, he, he was very canny. Um, I don't think that there was a, a mean bone in his body. I think that the movie portrays what I know is that he took the second match um, too lightly, and that I, I know that he did sort of sit around the pool, and that the fellow that plays Lorne Kubler, the one that sits on his court, um, 
used to say to him, and as, as did his son at the time, Larry, you need to you need to practice, you need to practice. And Bobby just, I think, took it much too lightly after the fiasco with Margaret Court. But I think that Bobby Riggs should be remembered really as a, um, first of all, a very good tennis player. Um, secondly, a man who, who knew about promotion and marketing and who made the most of his talent um, while he had a major disease. And I... I think there's a little bit of the Nick Boletari, not with the gambling, but Nick Boletari also is a great marketer. Right. Um, has taken right, taken his talent and um, made it into something very, very big by taking what everybody knows, but putting it into a system, you know, into a marketing plan, into a promotion plan. And this was sort of a, a Bobby Riggs kind of thing without the disease of, of, of gambling. You uh, you mentioned a, a moment ago some of the things that are, are going on in the way that that, um, that that women athletes, but and women in general are are being treated right now. If this movie, despite its flaws, puts Billie Jean King in the spotlight again and puts her career and puts you know puts a, can- a, a microphone in front of her again, how valuable is that to to for people to be reminded of the sort of the of the problems of the past to keep them from being repeated. Oh, I I I think that is the most important thing. You know, I tell I always told my daughter who's now thirty two that, you know, you she had a scholarship to, to play soccer and I said you would not have that if it wasn't for Billy Jean and, and uh, most of the young women now have no idea I, I would say if you're not in tennis you have no idea who Billy Jean is. You know, I don't don't even know the name. Um, and when I, when I look back on it, you know, my life would have been different without her. I think it's incredibly important because if you don't know the struggle to get here, you, you don't know that it can be taken away. You know, it, we can lose it, um, if we don't continue to, to stand up and to build on it. And Billie Jean is the best voice and always is the best voice, I think, for this. And there hasn't been anybody like her um, since all of this happened. But I think we have to be very, very careful we don't take any of this for granted. You know, um, the women at UMass, for instance, you know, that the assumption now is, yes, I have a scholarship. Um, and they don't remember. I, I, I remember many, 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 many years ago being kicked off a tennis court when there were, this is in L.A., and there were 25 courts there. There was one being used. I was on the court with Louise Braff, who at that time, had been, you know, past Wimbledon champion, past U.S. champion, and um, four men walked out and kicked me off the court when I was playing with her. There were 24 or 23 other open courts, but they walked out and they could take the court um, because, just because they were men. And people forget these kinds of things. So um, the fact that Billie Jean is still the voice and still is the one that people look to speak up, and this is both wonderful and it's terrific that it's back out here again, but there needs to be someone else, or there needs to be not someone else, there need to be many, 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 many other women who um, take on what she herself has taken on. You know, there need to be voices now rather than just a voice. Yeah, I was going to say, there's been so much attention lately on athletes and activism, but it's been so much centered on on race um 
it, yeah. it, it, does it, it seems like that, that there's there's maybe a void for a uh, for a woman or women to 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 step to step forward about about what what they're facing. Yeah, and I think that um, there's so much money in I would say in sport, um, but in tennis there's so much money, and I think that um, the international flavor of it means that. Um, they're less apt to speak up. I, I think that the best voice we have really right now is, is Venus. Right. Um, who, right? I mean, she, she's been terrific in, in sort of trying to take on the mantle of, of Billie Jean. She, you know, she adores Billie Jean, and so she's been trying to do what she can do. Um, she has a, a milder way than, than Billie, for sure. Um, but she, she's been terrific, and, um, but there needs to be, again, she's old, you know, she's late 30s, right? So there, I, I think, um, because tennis has become so international, I, I think that it's sort of a um, U.S. voice that needs, we need to find U.S. voices rather than, because people are not really going to care that Simone Halep says something or, you know what I mean? I mean, right. it's just different. Right, Monica uh, Sword and Stan wouldn't have wouldn't have had the same impact. The same thing, right? I mean, there seems to be you know, there was a bit of uh, of that with the women's soccer team years ago, which has really been good, and I think they've done something to speak up, um, but not enough, not enough. Um, and I I feel like um, I I don't know whether because of the money they're afraid of losing the amount of money that they have, but at some point it becomes a um, it's your responsibility. It is your responsibility to, to, to do the next, to take the next step, to speak up, to speak up for all young girls and to speak up for, you know, for women in general, for sure. And, and it's a little bit like the Me Too thing is going on now. You know, one person right. steps forward and then the next and then the next and the next. And now all of a sudden the flood, floodgates are open. And I think that um, with sport, um, we, we need to all take that step you know no one should try to have to be the first but i think it should be across all sports and and now and especially now because of what's going on in the united states you know um in terms of political nature and stuff it's time to to, to speak up more somebody approaches you and asks see the movie don't see the movie they're, they're on the fence whether they, they should see it what would you say i'd say see the movie See the movie and know that there's more to be seen, and see the movie and go go back and read online, or see the movie and look into more of this. Um, you know, I, it, not just if you're a woman, but if you're a man. I mean, I, when Billy Jean came here many, many years ago to speak at, at UMass graduation, um, I took her through Boyd and Jim, and one of the first people she met was Greg Canella, who said to her, "I want you to know that I was a young man when." You played your match. I remember watching the match, and I picked you to win. And he was um, he was very teary when he said this to her. Um, and and that I mean that that meant so much to him. That also means you know this is not just a, a women's movie. Yeah, I, I think I think that's uh, right, and not not especially surprising that Greg would fell would come on on that side of it, knowing knowing Greg. Right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, the, I would say to uh, to to anyone, um, if you 
if you Google um, Billie Jean King Battle of the Sexes, uh, some of the first things that come up are some some interesting things with with her talking about it recently, and um, oh. and, and some things. There's some interviews with with her and Emma Stone together. So if you if anyone listening wants to to learn more about this, it's it's out there. It's out there, and it, a few few keystrokes will get you there. So that's great, Judy. I always enjoy talking to you. I've had a lot of uh, good conversations over the years. So, so thanks so much for uh, for for joining me on on this one. And uh, thanks, Matt. Thank you. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, sure. Bye bye. All right, we we want to thank Judy for talking to us about that. It, it's certainly a film that's worth checking out, especially considering everything that's going on in the world. It's nice to see where some of this at least got a start and how much we can still go to. Um, Matt, this week I'm sure you will have coverage from UMass and Appalachian State. Where could people follow along with that? Yeah, the uh, stuff from hockey, stuff from football, some some preseason basketball stuff. You can find all of it at gazettenet.com There's, uh, on the UMass page. And uh, you can c- connect with me on, on Twitter uh, at Matt Votor, V-A-U-T-O-U-R-D-H-G. I have the same handle actually on 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 Instagram as well, and you can get your uh, you can get UMass sports covered right in your Facebook newsfeed uh, as well. If you go to um, if you go to the UMass the Gazette Net UMass Sports Facebook page. So if you're not satiated with UMass coverage, then I don't think you're looking hard enough. <laughs> so thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you next week.